Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. I'm Kenny Holmes. I am Robert Kraft. We're back for a thrilling episode of Score the Podcast. Right, Kenny? Another double guester. Double guester. It's it's always exciting when we have those. Uh, this is Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. And of course, we have two guests today. Uh, the first guest is a World Soundtrack Awards Film Composer of the Year nominee. Uh, she's been scoring some of the best documentaries over the past few years. Um, and you're going to get to know her. Nanita Desai joining us from London, who we're really excited about. Yep. And then followed up by... Dan Romer, who has uh, his latest film, Luca, is out right now on Disney+. Plus. Go watch it. It's a beautiful film. The music is amazing. And um, so we're, we have two guests we're going to get to in just a bit. But as always, before we get to that, we want to take a moment to thank our partners, our great friends, and uh, our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral sample libraries for film composers. Whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional, Spitfire has so many sounds you'll love. And they also release a new library in their Free Labs series, and I'm a huge fan of that. So you can get an entire orchestra for free in the form of their BBC Symphony Orchestra Discover Edition. Yeah, and they're constantly releasing these big packages that you can purchase uh, as well, including uh, the one that we're going to play you a demo cue of uh, today at the end of the show, the Hammers Package developed and produced in collaboration with composer Charlie Klauser, uh, who, you know, his great horror scores from like Saw and Resident Evil. Um, he was also in Nine Inch Nails. Uh, the Hammers package features more than 1,000 sounds, including detailed hits, ensembles, over 800 live performance loops, including genre-bending warps, all captured and processed to be broadcast ready. With this new array of explosive drums inspired by Charlie's extensive experience in rock and industrial production and crafted for modern cinematic uses, composers will have a uniquely powerful tool for creating hard-hitting rhythms. So you'll hear that demo cue. Um, there's also one of their newer packages out, Albion Solstice, which you can pick up. And there's a way to save money just by being a listener of this show. Why don't you tell them about it, Robert? Well, I'm going to tell you about the incredible deal that Spitfire has for you. If you're a score of the podcast listener, which I'm going to assume if you are hearing me, you are, you get this. You can watch it on YouTube, of course, which is my favorite way to see all of us. And I get to see us be incredible movie stars. I mean, it's just something that, you know, you get used to after a while. But our listeners get to save 25% off their first purchase of any Spitfire audio product with the promo code. Ready? Kenny, do you have a pencil? SCORE2021. S-C-O-R-E-2021. You listen for the demo at the end of the show, and don't forget to use that promo code. SCORE2021 for 25% off your first purchase from Spitfire Audio. That's terrific. I wrote it down. And uh, as we always mention, as the season gets closer to ending, which we're, we're getting there, the promo code doesn't last forever. So if you're on the fence about getting a Spitfire package and you haven't done it before, go use the 25% before it runs out. Let's get to it. Joining us now, she's an award-winning composer of some of the most memorable documentaries of the past few years, like The Reason I Jump, For Sama, Persona, 
the dark truth behind personality tests and American Murder, The Family Next Door. She's also a World Soundtrack Awards nominee for Film Composer of the Year 2021. Please welcome Nanita Desai. Good morning. Good evening. You're you're in uh, London, are you? Are you not? I am in sunny London at the moment. Hello, Kenny. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's lovely to Hello, be here today. Thank you. And we haven't been together we haven't seen each other since um i'm trying to think was it 2019 or 18 that we hung out in belgium yes. for a minute absolutely robert two years. it's just lovely yeah little two did years, i know nearly two years i have a full mm. confession to make before we get started i remember someone coming up to me and you will remember who it might have been someone who was working with you a manager PR saying, oh, you must talk to this composer. And I remember feeling that thing that I often feel, which is, oh, do I have to? I just want to hang out. I don't want to do any more work. Well, I'll meet her. Well, we sat and we talked, and I thought, boy, she's really interesting. Little did I know that I would then find out that you are one of my new favorite composers that you oh, are oh. writing music that is kind of mind-blowing for me. I mean it completely. I not only went back after that moment where we had coffee and thought, well, I should probably find out who she is, started to listen to those scores for, for Sama and the reason I jump, and realized, oh, my God, she's huge. So <laughs> I um, forgive me for being somewhat distracted that first time if i was because i just didn't know how talented you are I, oh thank you that's so lovely to hear you say that i really really I'm, i I'm mean just gushing every word yesterday because i wanted to be prepared i listened to a lot of your scores back to back um again because we were prepared for this a few weeks ago and then i listened and i thought you have one quality that I find the most impressive, and that is your string writing is heartbreaking, and oh, nothing short of heartbreaking. Just oh, that's truly, <laughs> how, how do you tap into that sad, melancholy, emotional structure and harmonies i mean it's a dumb question because it just comes from your emotional life but where does that come from where did you learn to write for strings that's my first question that's uh well that's uh, i'm so flattered i can't tell you how much that means to me robert um it's it's funny because i'm i've been suffering from imposter syndrome my whole career you know, and uh, and I'm not trained, and so I worked, I think, doubly hard to to compensate for my imposter syndrome, and uh, I'm entirely self-taught. And uh, in fact, uh, a, a little-known fact that Daniel Pemberton and I both started working on the same show together <laughs> twenty odd years ago and uh and and our careers sort of diverged and and obviously we go off into different it's it's called in the uk it's called the lonely planet travel adventure show on channel four it started off based on the lonely planet guidebooks 
Do you remember those? Yes. When we could go off off the beat off the beaten track into little known corners of the world. And it was a great show because they had a different composer on 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 each episode and they tried us out. They gave new composers breaks. And before that I'd been working for Peter Gabriel as his assistant music engineer. Really? And 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 prior to that, I'd been working as a sound designer on feature films, um, working as part of big teams at um, Pinewood Film Studios and Twickenham Film Studios here in the UK. So, uh, so I got a great grounding in in all these peripheral areas because I suffered from imposter syndrome. I thought ah, film composing—that's a thing you can make a living out of. Nah, that's not for me. And yet music was in my, I loved film and I loved music. And I went to film school to study sound design. Mm. And so, so I really got, a, got this grounding in all these different areas like sound editing, dialogue editing, sound effects, a little bit of music editing uh, for Bernardo Bertolucci on Little Buddha and, and projects like that. And then, and then I, I gave it all up. I, I got offered a job six months paid work on this Kate Blanchett movie called Elizabeth. Hmm. And I got this phone call. I really wanted to be a composer and work in the music industry. And, and I got this phone call and said, Nanita, do you want to be the dialogue editor on this Kate Blanchett film? I thought, how much are you paying me? Oh my God, that's amazing. And, and then, yeah. And I said, Nope, I'm a composer. Thank you very much. Very Goodbye. brave. <laughs> and it's like taking that leap of faith, you know, that, that you have to do, I think. And um, and in my head, I was a composer, but I, I was penniless. You know, I had no, no money. I had, had no idea what I was going to do. So I, I sent this. I wanted to get into music engineering. So I sent this letter to, um, handwritten letter to Peter Gabriel. And I got a call from his studios a couple of weeks later saying, oh, we got this letter from you, Nanita. Would you like to come down and visit? Did you go to Box? And, uh, yeah, Box. I love it. Were there. you in it's, Box the dream. day that I came down and jammed with Peter Gabriel, which is a story for another day, but I could probably, uh. you and I maybe offline are going to figure out if you were the engineer when I came to <laughs> Box for two days to hang out with Peter. Oh, when was that? Mm, I it's going to be, give my you tell me, we'll figure out when you were there and I'll, I can probably figure out the exact date but uh i was invited to go to box i'm gonna say 98 and i slept over it at a he put us up at a fabulous hotel with an indoor pool and uh oh i had so much fun hanging out with peter oh i'm i'm a little earlier than that okay and i got i i i was put up at his um cottage at his home uh in a spare bedroom and I hung out with his daughters, and it was it was great fun. And um, so I so I so I ended up working for him, and and then I met this music supervisor, and you know it's all about networks. And he knew I was desperate to be a composer for film and TV. Mm. I just didn't know how to get into the industry. And I'd set up my own little studio at home, and I was tinkering away, recording myself, and learning four track recording on cassette multi track recorders. And um, and uh, he gave me a break, and it was baptism by fire, and that was it, and that that was my first proper scoring gig, along with Dan Pemberton, and um, 
but you know to come back to your question about strings um it just it just comes from the heart doesn't it that's an impossible answer i refuse to accept that from the heart (laughs) you can be that capable of string writing but i i must now think about my own music and think what is missing in my own heart because i couldn't write strings like that no (laughs) matter but it's really the choice of notes so Ninita, you mentioned that you you aren't you weren't trained in that. Um, so I'm curious what your musical background is. Where did you grow up, and what what got you into music initially? Was it film music or was it pop music or a whole mishmash of everything? I mean, I used to my my parents bought this turntable. It's with this diamond tip that I wasn't allowed to touch, <laughs> and and they and I they used to take me to the Harrods. Uh, record department when I was really little, about sort of six years old, six or seven years old. And we used to buy these old vinyl records, sort of 50 cents, you know, for these secondhand vinyl records. And 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 we just used to come home with an armful of, of vinyl. And they were albums from the 60s and the 70s. And you know, TV theme tunes, uh, film sound. John Barry was a huge hero of mine. The first album I ever got was Ennio Morricone's um, compilation of Good, the Bad and the Ugly for a few dollars more and, and a fistful of dollars. And I just, I'd never heard anything like it, you know, it was, and, uh, and I recently had to study Morricone's music, actually, because I was, I was asked to give a talk about his music mm. for some reason. And so, so I've, I've been diving into his life and work and it's just been, what an incredible human being he was and i'm so looking forward to the documentary about him that's coming out at venice film festival oh wow did you ever meet him yeah yeah Uh, no i didn't i i really wish that i my one regret musical regret is that i didn't go to the royal albert hall to see him uh conduct his scores about a few years ago when he came over but uh sorry i'm digressing but did you are you a great (laughs) <laughs> are, are you a great reader, score reader? When you said you were, you know, you went to Harrods and you listened, you bought those records and all that. Did you also, were you concurrently getting taught how to read music? No, I mean, I, 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 I learned the piano at school and I learned the violin. And I guess, you know, I have, I, I suppose to answer your question, I have a sensibility of, of an understanding of, of string playing, but purely from an emotional level and, I um so I I learned the piano but then at home I went to a church of England school so I sang in school choirs I sang in lots of choirs I sang in latin choirs and gospel choirs and you know pop choirs pop pop music and 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 I wanted to be a singer originally and have my own band and write songs be a singer songwriter so I was really influenced by Tracy Chapman and and well, the the original Joni Mitchell, who just blew my mind, and I was a huge Joni Mitchell fan, and and then getting into jazz and Nordic jazz, and then film scores, and I used to to listen to these film scores, and then though that introduced me to the feature films, hmm. so you know melodies were a big th- part of my life. I just sang all the time, and I'm still a hummer. I sing all the time, you know. I've, Day and night, I have. I'll watch. I'll. I know. I'll watch a show. I'll watch a show, and I even though I don't know the music, I'll be singing 
the counterpoint or the harmony to the score in the background. <laughs> <laughs> which drives my husband round. Oh, it's I'm so obnoxious in my house. Just scatting around the house all over the place. Yeah, it's um so yeah. Yeah. so in with with moving forward in that and and finding interest in all of this though you you got into the production side of things and not 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 the composing. So were you trying to get into composing and, and just saw an opportunity to get your foot in the door? Or how did that transition happen and to get into the actual well, working was, in film? I mean, I, I played various instruments, you know, sort of Western instruments, Indian classical instruments, the sitar and the tablas. So I was really into percussion and rhythm as well. And so, you know, it's the world of, of different musical cultures. It was, it was all music to me. It wasn't, this is Indian music. This is, American music, this is Australian music, it was all, you know, just it's the sound, it was the, the sonic, the sonics got, really got to me. So I was really interested in engineering and, you know, I, I loved Daniel Lenoir's work mm. and I was interested in record production and what, what you know, production and, you know, uh, all the 80s, you know, listening to David Bowie and Michael Jackson and all these these amazing pop records, you know, what makes this sound sound so incredible and and the technology and and i suffered from stage fright so i thought well i'm not going to be a singer so i'm not going to be a performer so i want to find out what goes on behind the scenes and um and i remember you know off on a tangent i went to film school to study sound and i was i remember standing in a doing a night shoot as a boom operator standing at in in the middle of soho in no November, pouring with rain at four o'clock in the morning, and my car had just been towed away, <laughs> and 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 that was like was like a, a light bulb moment when I thought, I want to be in a warm, cozy studio. <laughs> I do not. Hurt. This is not for me. You know, standing on location. Were there so, women composers besides Rachel Portman that you could look at as role models, or did you feel that that was also an obstacle? No, there weren't. I mean, and I was always a bit of a tomboy, a tomboy, and a, and I played with Meccano sets and Lego and and getting dirty and and just playing with cars and and pulling things apart. And and there were no female role models for me. I must admit, apart from Rachel Portman and um, actually, and who else was there? Anne Dudley. Yeah. I really admired Anne. I really admired Anne Dudley because she managed to traverse, you know, transcend all these different genres from the art of noise with um, Trevor. Trevor Trevor Horn and uh, Bruce Woolley mm -hmm. and uh, and who became a mate of mine actually many years later and and then she got into film scores the and full you know, Monty. she's doing all this amazing yeah the full Monty and doing this amazing work uh, but you know and, and but I never saw myself from you know, I thought, well, I'm a woman, I can't do this. <laughs> and I did have a lot of opposition. I had a lot of people who said, well, that's not a real, music is not a real job. You know, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You can't make a living out of it. It's so precarious. You know, you're a freelancer. There's no money to be made. You well, you never know when your next job's coming from. And I actually got a degree in mathematics yeah. um, as a kind of a backup plan. I thought, well, may maybe I should, if it doesn't, if the music thing doesn't work out, I can always going no no disservice to accountancy or being a lawyer or a maths teacher 
but it just I couldn't envisage a life without music being a major part of it. Well, that's a smart so thing. I, we, we have a lot of composer, aspiring composer listeners. But the backup plan is a smart idea for anything if you're trying to go to something that's such a it's a tough industry to get break into to to last in. I mean it's it's a constant grind to get your next job and all of that. And so the backup plan thing is never a bad idea in, in any creative field or professional sports, anything like that where it, it could be a very short tenure um even if you, you break in. So that I, I really admire the fact that you you thought of doing that because that's that's a mature decision to make at a younger age to do that. Full confession, I still have no backup plan. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, my backup plan never lasted. I thought I'll give this five years, and and I was I was I think I was smart with my maths degree because I did my thesis on the wave equation. Oh, and oh. I did. I did <laughs> so geeky, and uh, that's great. And I did everything. I did everything I could to gear even my maths degree gear it towards sound and and you know music technology and then i i did lots of courses and i did courses in photography and filmmaking and you know i just thought I, this is my world i have to learn everything around the world um you know with sound design and music and all of that and so so my backup plan didn't work out because i've you know, according to my parents, I've never had a real job. Or it worked out perfectly. You know, it's interesting to hear you describe all that because I found online uh, Nanita Desai's five tips for becoming a composer. And I found, I wrote them all down. I thought they were absolutely fabulous. And the very first one is very, very important, I thought which is you learn everything about film and TV. You watch as much as you can. You try and learn sound design and production. And so many people are so mono-focused on, I have to learn the ranges of a piccolo. Well, that's important. I can't deny it. But if you understand character, or you understand why Shakespeare is great, or you understand how lighting affects the drama, any of those things, of course, if you keep an open mind. And I think num tip number five of yours is lifelong learning, which I also really love. It, it's what keeps our brains going. So when you're saying yeah. you were fumbling in a way to get towards composing, I think in retrospect, all of that added up to be such a plus. I re I really love the fact that you're that wide ranging. I want to ask you a question. When you said you studied wave technology formation maths in America, we say math. Um, mm -hmm. but what would you say right now on the whatever you're working on today? Because I'm sure it evolves. The ratio of acoustic instrument to electronic instrument it's a clumsy way to ask the question but are you involved a lot in electronics more than you thought mm, not as much as you as in your, my music yes yeah yeah it's interesting i started off with a lot of electronics but i've always incorporated live elements and and 
from my days working with Peter and and in being immersed in world music, that's kind of what I got known for doing sort of world music scores um, and uh, for quite a few years. And so I would bring in, uh, I, 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 I've always loved to make the invisible visible, you know, bringing, finding musicians, not the usual session musicians, but finding musicians who play unusual instruments who have no experience of doing film and TV and, and bringing them into uh, my world, into my sonic world and incorporating these unusual sounds. And I always, I've always, always done that for years now before world music was a thing in film and TV sometimes. And, and I was, I had a fear of orchestral writing and the first four years of my work as a composer, I actually uh, met my husband-to-be at the time, uh, my partner, and uh, we said, well, why don't we work together? And he's classically trained, and I was world and pop and engineering and everything else. And so we started working together, and I sort of relied on him for the orchestral side of things. Mm. And, and then I thought, oh, I'm loving this. This is really interesting. And so I learned and uh, learned how to do it from, he taught me so much. And, um, and we were going out at the time and working. And then after four or five years, we just thought we had a interesting relationship in that we started going out. We started working together, but then we were going out. And, and then uh, we thought we're not going to work together anymore. This isn't working. But we loved each other dearly. So we, we got married. But we split up with our, with in terms of the business after the first four or five years, and so I became the composer, and he plays music, and he's he plays the double bass. Mm. So I have to incorporate the double bass into my scores and write in, interesting lines for the bass. Otherwise, I am for the chop. <laughs> but but uh, but but over the years, I grew in confidence, and now I love writing for orchestra. And on a large symphonic scale, or even on an intimate scale, always bring in, I would say, 50-50 of my work um, is bringing in acoustic, to answer your question, Robert, but acoustic elements, because it's the, the human connection, the human touch is so, so important. But I love manipulating sounds and everyday sounds and, and having bringing that blend of everything into creating a unique sonic world see it all comes together in some on. ways yeah. you're saying exactly. orchestra your sound design i also have never really focused on the real world ex experience in box working at real world mm. with peter gabriel and my friend rob bozes and having the experience that peter he introduced me to so many different artists and sounds and musical styles that Real World Records, and for those of our listeners that aren't aware of Real World Records and aren't aware of the incredible artists that Peter has championed across the globe, um, Nusrat yeah. Ali. Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. Fateh yeah, Ali Khan. Great, great. He worked with Michael Brook. Yes, um, with Michael Brook. Yep. Yeah. And uh, 
just so many interesting artists, but in some ways the way that also is another strength that you bring to scoring, which is, well, you can do orchestral, which is Western and traditional in one way, but to be able to bring in real-world sounds and different textures from... I mean, I'm looking at you for the podcast listeners. You can't see what we're seeing here on YouTube, which is an array of really strange-looking instruments behind you. <laughs> some of yeah, which, so I have... Uh, yeah. Some of which I have um, no idea what they are, but they look really cool. Kind of... What's uh, yeah. that big stringed well, one? It's kind of a, an oud, maybe, or... Yes, that's a that's a an oud made out of rosewood. Um, Fabulous to to my left there. But I have uh, every instrument has a story, and I just love that personal connection I have with wood. I mean, I've got my DJ corner in front of me with all my um, little synthesizers, and I have some old vintage synths, the Moog and the Roland Juno sixty and uh, Moog Voyager, and some lovely things and. Uh, my first, the first synth I ever bought was a Roland D seventy, uh, and uh, and then of course the computer and a bunch of other things. I've, but I love, I have one instrument. Uh, it's uh, like a hand pan, uh, which is it's it's very therapeutic for me. I'll, I'll walk past it when I'm really stressed, and I'll just grab it and start playing playing on it. It's one of these sort of tuned metallic. I don't know if you can hear that, Ooh. but it's a it's a lovely Born sound. supremacy fact, meets slumdog millionaire. Hang on a sec. Hang on. Hang on a second. Oh, she's grabbing it. She's pulling something off the wall. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, that's great. It's also very Caribbean. Can't play it. it is. It's it's kind of based on. Um, it's a, a derived from. A steel pan. Carol, uh, and it's, composer Carol is on our screen here and on our podcast. What note was that? Ding, ding, ding. That was an la, A flat la, 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 and a D. And then I heard some low C. And yeah, that makes it I've a got really eight, nice eight, tritone and some beautiful... Eight, eight notes. Mm. And, and I mean, I have to resonate with uh, the instrument. And that, there were 50 different tunings. And that was custom mm. made for me. Because it was I sort of... It just... You connect with the instrument. It's a, it's a, and I had to wait a year and a half for that. I was on a waiting list. It was really, oh. really difficult. So, um, so I'm you- so jealous of your room. <laughs> Can I ask you just all of the, the different skills that you learned on your path to becoming a composer? Not a lot of people get to, to understand those aspects of filmmaking and how they conspire to make a film. And I'm wondering how that helps you um, sound design uh, in terms of writing your score and leaving room for things. If you see something on the screen that may come in, um, are you, are you really cognizant of stuff like that because of your training and in, in those types of uh, other worlds of filmmaking? Yeah, very much so, Kenny. I mean, it's, it's everything, you know, it's, it's very easy. I mean, as, as composers, you know, we want to show off and say, Hey, look, Ma, what, look what I can do. And uh, write this great big piece of music over a scene and, and swamp it emotionally. And the most important thing is to serve the film and to serve the director's vision and and to put your ego at keep your ego at the door. And so when I was working on Forsama, for example, that was a that was a a really 
challenging undertaking emotionally, story-wise, because I've never experienced working on a project where the protagonist in the film, first for a start, it's a documentary, so it's real, and that and that has brings with it a whole load of baggage because you feel that weight of responsibility on your shoulders of doing justice to the story when the director of the film is in the film and she's there she survived this traumatic experience and she's saying Nanita I want the music like this and I go yes what whatever you want you know of course and and the sound you know having that background as a sound designer telling stories through sound whether it be you know dialogue sound effects music it's all part of this immersive holistic experience of of the audience's experience so i um so initially i wrote 80 80 themes that were big you know the director the co-director edward watt said i want a score that's rich hollywood like mm. like catherine bigelow's zero dark 30 30 30 and um i thought okay fine so i wrote a whole load of themes you know big electronics orchestral bashing away and we were editing for a long time and then there was a pause in the film in the editing process and the film wasn't working for various reasons and what they did was they found the spine of this film which was this relationship between a mother and a daughter and when they discovered that the film became much more intimate and none of the music i had done worked anymore so we kind of went back to the drawing board and for me authenticity and uh, is incredibly important when being trying to be true to the story and true to wad's life story so we looked at the, the landscape in the film, the soundscape, and we stripped all the music back. And we then created this blend between music and sound and blended the music with the natural sound of the film. And that taught me so much. It sort of took me back to my sound design roots. Wow. And thought, you know, you have to tell a story through sound. So sometimes, you know, there was a scene where a car was driving through the uh, sit the center, uh, the city center of Aleppo, and the city's crumbling all around you with shelling and bombing going on, and you hear the sound of bombs going off, and and I had this great big driving thumping, energetic driving piece of music, and we took all the sounds away, and we were left with this heartbeat of a drum and the drum blended with the sound of the bombs and you didn't know whether you were listening to the music or whether you were listening to the to the um the bombs i want to make shelling. sure that our listeners know this film uh which i believe was nominated for many different awards um it's yeah um it's i saw it probably right after you and i met and because you had said, oh, I'd like you to see my new film. I thought, okay, another composer with another film. And then just like I said, I went and watched the movie, which is called Four, F-O-R, Sama, S-A-M-A, which is the name of a little girl. Um, Four, Sama. I went and watched Four, Sama. And I can say, quite honestly, it blew my mind on every level. And I recommend everyone who's listening to see that movie. It is a true 
masterpiece. Masterpiece. Well, you're you're you didn't cool. stop there. <laughs> yep. Uh, the reason I jump is crushing it, and uh, as well, um, let me get the the exact title right because I watched this um, a few months ago, and we we messaged on on Twitter a little bit, but um, American murder the family next door which is a, kind of amazing too the, the the it's a tragic <laughs> tragic story about a family in colorado and I, i'm a i'm in the news world myself and we deal with these real stories and sometimes you you want to you know in a longer piece you want to add music um but it's really hard not to choose something that's not the right music we don't have the luxury of using composers um, so it's always fascinating to me to see documentaries and how music is used because you're right. You want to keep the authenticity. You don't want to manipulate and you just do it so well. And it's, it's not a surprise that all of these great documentary filmmakers are coming to you uh, for your music um, in these films and that you're nominated for film composer of the year. Tell us really quick before we wrap up how you feel about that and, uh, what great company you're in there as well. Um, these awards are happening in October. What was it like for you to hear that you're uh, nominated for that? Truly stunned with disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite very, very surprised. And I think one major reason for that is that music for documentaries tends to be uh, overlooked. Always. And yeah. And, and I think, it's changed. Uh, it, uh, the landscape of music for docs has changed over the last few years and feature documentaries have, there's so much care and craft and time and energy that's, that goes into scoring music for documentaries like these. And especially with the reason I jump, which is this, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. It's very cinematic and mm -hmm. there's, there's space and, and, you know, and the sound is incredibly important uh, in, in, in the film. And and there's so many creative docs out there that are being made. Uh, and even in terms, you know, streamers like Netflix and Amazon, you know, they're putting a huge amount of focus and energy on, on documentaries. It's the golden so, age of documentaries right now. It is. And, and, yeah, and so I think it's wonderful that documentary music and scores are kind of on a par i mean when i started in scoring docs and i've moved into feature films and into fiction and and um and i'm doing drama series for um for a big u.s uh entertainment company at the moment and and bbc one and, and itv and so on but i love my roots in documentary because there's authenticity there there's there's a lot of care and craft that goes into it and i'm you know that it's greater than the sum of what i'm working on um, i'm working on something that has importance and and that you know important subjects um so i i love that being going on a on a journey with the filmmakers um that means a lot to me because it's it's not just about the music it's about you know all these other issues and subjects that and and bringing that out to the wider world is is really important so being acknowledged um by ghent and the world soundtrack awards is, is a huge deal to me because i i know you know these fellow nominees uh create incredible music so i'm just really proud and and grateful that it's finally being acknowledged and you and, deserve you know, to be in that group of incredible nominees we're so proud to have you on this show and expect to hear great things coming up 
even greater things. Uh, thank you so much. I know we, we went back and forth trying to get a date and we wanted to get you in before the season wrapped up and, and we're so glad we made it work. Thank you so much for coming on the show and best of luck at the World Soundtrack Awards. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here today. Thank you, Nanita Desai, for your music. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up after the break, more to come. We're joined by Dan Romer. Stick around. This is Score the Podcast. We'll be right back. Hey, guys, it's Kenny. Back to the show in just a second. If you like Score the Podcast, you're going to want to check out More Score. More Score already has hours of content waiting for you. You can listen to interviews with composers Zach Robinson and Leo Bierenberg of Cobra Kai and Carlos Rafael Rivera, the maestro behind the Queen's Gambit. Plus, we've done a sit-down with the founders of Spitfire Audio, Christian Henson and Paul Thompson, who share why not even an erupting volcano could stop them from launching the business. It's a pretty crazy story. More Score is our new Patreon show for Score Superfans. And if you don't know what Patreon is, well, it's a website and an app that lets fans crowdfund the type of extra content you want. And with Patreon, you can listen or watch right on the app. It's really easy. And the best part about More Score is... It's year-round, just like you asked for. No more off-season. Just go to patreon.com slash morescore or download the Patreon app and search More Score. We'll see you over there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Siddhartha Kosla. You're listening to Score, the podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We're so excited. Joining us now, he's an award-winning composer and record producer. You know his scores from some fantastic films and TV series like Beasts of the Southern Wild, Beasts of No Nation, The Good Doctor, Rami, Maniac, Chasing Coral, and his most recent film, which is streaming on Disney Plus right now, Luca. Please welcome to the show Dan Romer. Hey, Dan, how you doing, man? Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so sorry I moved a shaker during your your intro. I I, I was. You know what? We are a big fan of shaking things up soundtracks, and I think the only fair thing to do, Dan, besides welcome you and tell you how much we've looked forward to talking to you, is ask you a favor. Yes. Which is, would you mind? Picking up that accordion that you just moved and playing <laughs> playing three notes on it because yeah I think he was rearranging the studio oh, during uh, the set a little live music that. to kick this off lift it up a little so we can see the beautifulness of it on the oh, oh man yeah. is that Carol you want to identify it I'm I'm thinking an F major seven. <laughs> Dan, I have to tell you that that's our first accordion on Score the Podcast. Give it up for Dan Romer. I think it's our first original cue on Score the Podcast. <laughs> hey, Dan, I'm going to kick it right off by saying that I watched this week because I did a deep Dan Romer dive, which is a fun thing to say. I watched you play accordion in Ghent with the Belgium radio 
Philharmonic. I was there. I'm a World Soundtrack Academy member. And you played a cue from our film, Beasts of the Southern Wild. And um, I thought it was an amazing thing. First of all, I just thought the combination of accordion and orchestra is incredibly interesting sound. But I guess my real question, and the important one is, how hard is it to travel from Los Angeles to Ghent, <laughs> Belgium with an accordion? Do, Actually, you have, do you have to buy it a seat? We ask the tough questions on Score the Podcast. Um, I, I imagine if I was traveling with an accordion, I would, I would do that. They did rent me an accordion. Ah, I knew um, that would be the answer. Darn. Yeah, it, they, they gave me an accordion there, and it was a, it was a, it was a very flashy accordion. I don't know if the, it was in color or not. It was? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty fancy accordion. Uh, See, now I just and, thought you were styling the whole time with like kind of a, <laughs> you know, a little bling on your accordion. No, that's the only, they were like, look, this is the only accordion in the city that, that, in that is available for rentals. Like, okay, this is, sure. I'm how, does one, I'm it. how does one become an accordion player? Because when I was growing up, yeah, I don't know anyone that played the accordion. It wasn't one of the school instruments that you could rent. How does that happen? Yeah, well, so... It happened when I was in college. Um, I there was like an, I went to SUNY Purchase, and there's an instrument uh, rental room. So it's not not rental, but it's like an instrument borrowing room. It's just full of a ton of stuff. Uh, there were I think there were a couple like of uh, a couple of Harry Parches instruments in there. It was a really nice. wild room. Yeah, it was cool. He was kind um, of located somewhere up there. I think that sounds right. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I'd heard he was he had been somewhere around that area, but. Um, yeah, I, I went in and uh, there was an accordion and um, I'd never played it before, but I, I, I picked it up and just immediately fell in love. And uh, my my roommate at the time uh, was had had borrowed a mandolin, which he'd never played before either. So the two of us kind of and we were we were in a rock band together and, you know, we, we, we both played guitar in this rock band we were both in. And we uh, his name is Will Farr. Me and uh, Will and I both borrowed these instruments we'd never played before, and we started kind of doing these like accordion mandolin duets together, and and uh, and and we both got really like really into those two instruments. It's such an authentic combo of kind of folk folky stuff. I I'm leaping over all the things I want to ask you because there are a lot of cool stuff I want to talk about, but that yeah. in some ways it's kind of the sound of Luca a little bit. I yeah. mean, the bizarre thing is. I don't know how many years later, accordion and mandolin are very Italianate in their in their sort of the orchestration of a score you'd think was Italian. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mandolin. I mean, the thing with so many of these folk instruments is that, like, you know, mandolin and accordion are also you know American bluegrass and Appalachian instruments. You know, and it's like when you're looking at these different cultures' musics, it's like they're all so related and they all have just the tiniest little tweak that can happen to make them sound like the other region. That's so you know? interesting. And, and yeah. Is that tweak uh, harmonic or rhythmic or how, it, how would you? Yes, yes, yes. And yes. I mean, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's all the above. I mean, it can be, it can be melodic. It can be harmonic. It can be one of the most incredible um, moments I had. So I, I, when I was uh, figuring out, when, when, I, when we were demoing, uh, when, we, when I was making demos on the theme demos on Luca, um, you know, we, uh, my, I have a couple people I work with who are from Italy. 
And uh, I can't remember if it was Josuer or Lorenzo who said, um, when you're doing basses, when you're writing bass for Italian music, you're not allowed to repeat a note twice in a row. So in American music, uh, uh, in American in American like bluegrass or, or Appalachian music, he's grabbing an instrument. It's a guitar. It's you, a guitar you, for our audio listeners. Oh Jesus! This is so out of tune. Oh God! Oh, oh, it's in. It's in some weird tuning. Hold on. I, my nylon's not in a weird tuning. Hold on. We're going to have a live, live tuning session now. This is really No, no, no. It won't happen. It won't happen. <laughs> okay, there we go. Oh, God. So, oh, I just hit my frame drum. That was what that sound nice, was. Nice. This, this is, is the frame. More music. This is the frame drum I used on Luca. Oh, nice. Um, I think but, you got to um, bang on it. You got to bang on it. We got to get a lot of music out of you. We can get guitars <laughs> and... I'm, I mean, I'm into it. I'm I'm into making uh, just just doing some scoring right now. Let's do it. Kind of a Harry uh, Parch. I feel like we we're watching Harry that. Parch. I feel like we're watching that Bo Burnham special right now. He's just running around grabbing stuff and playing. Yeah, this is this, the head is tunable, and with the weather, it goes uh, every which way. You kind of have to keep tuning it while you're working. But yeah, that this that that piece of percussion was integral for Luca for sure. So in American, you know, country music and and Appalachian and bluegrass, that kind of stuff. Your bass will do a lot of like this kind of stuff. And one thing about Italian music is you're not allowed to go bum 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 bum. You have to have a different note. You can't do two notes in a row that are the same. So what I ended up doing for a lot of these Italian bassline things is things like oh sorry, like a like a So, like, the idea is, like, or you don't even need to do the, the octave thing, just going, like, bum, 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 sorry, bum, going down to the third on that, bum, 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 avoids having to do that double note in a row. And it's, like, little subtle things like that when it's, like, when you That's hear... That's lovely. Yes, and before you put the guitar down... Yeah. It's interesting that you're playing this in a kind of a two-step feel, because I noticed a lot of three, four... Mm, yeah kind oh of, yeah let's talk a, about three four a lot of you know what i found out this is one of the joys of listening to a composer's opus yeah is that dan romer likes likes three quarter time for cues and they work really well and it's not always the same kind of one two three one two three it's different f- ways of expressing three four but man does it work and i just started to realize i don't know whether it was beast of no nation or beasts of the southern wild or luca god sometimes the coolest cues are in like waltz time why yeah yeah well I, yeah this is definitely something we can talk about i mean well so yeah almost every cue in beasts of southern wild is in waltz time uh that the, uh, almost every cue that you can feel a rhythmic pulse to it is in is in a waltz um no, that's not really true. There's a lot of it's in a lot of it's in waltzes. Um, the thing about three four is that it's the thing or groups of three in general three six nine twelve whatever it's divisible by itself sort of it's it's divisible in a way where it's like so if I'm playing like um, I can go bum 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 and divide it that way or I can go 
bum 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 or I can go bum 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 so it's like that thing is divisible <laughs> equally in three different ways whereas if you're in like if you're in 4/4 it, it it doesn't have the same polyrhythmic feeling when you're dividing it up like going like bum 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 feels really like groovy and polyrhythmic and 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 forward motiony whereas no matter how many times you divide up four uh bum 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 it never gets like funkier you know what I mean? Love so that. The only way to divide up four in that way is to divide it up into groups of not only way, but one way to do that is to, to do it in groups of three. The problem, is, the problem is that leaves you with a uh, that leaves you with a spare beat. So if you're like, so if I, we're, we're just do here, bum 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 bum. Bum, the bum, brain power bum, to bum. do what you're doing is just it's mind-blowing to me are you a drummer too no i'm not well i i, I played some drums on some things if i have to but i'm not a good drummer i like that's it's funny like i feel like the thing with um like pop instruments it's like it it seems like guitar is the like you're like oh guitar seems like the most complicated instrument to learn uh and and it maybe is the most complicated to start playing immediately but you can get away not being an incredible guitar player and being like in a rock band. If you're not a good drummer, people know from a mile, like the second you hear a band play with a bad drummer, you're like, that's not a good sounding band. Like you can have a, uh, you can have a, 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 a mediocre guitar player and an incredible drummer. And you're like, wow, they sound great. And if you have a really great guitar player and your drummer is terrible, you're like, all right, you know, just figuring it out. <laughs> it's so fun, accurate, and interesting to hear. And last night I read about Steve Jordan, one of the greatest drummers on the planet. He played mm -hmm. with Rolling Stones and everybody in the world and is actually replacing Charlie Watts. The Stones are going out on tour. And he talked about exactly that, that he would sit down in different bands and they would all turn around the minute he started playing and go, geez, our band has never sounded this good ever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what's really interesting when you say about you're not a drummer is i watched a little clip of beasts of no nation being recorded by mm. you and you you kind of play drums on stringed instruments yeah you actually and, created and bow yeah and bow. I thought that was on fabulous. guitars and drums on violins and where did that first of all i want to say to our fabulous audience beasts of no nation among many of the films that Dan has scored, is an incredible movie with Idris Elba. Um, really different from Beasts of the Southern Wild and really different from Luca. So, Dan, you are scoring just this incredible range of stories. How did you end up doing Beasts of No Nation? And how did you end up thinking of that idea with the stringed instruments? Uh, well, so the idea of the string instruments kind of came from uh, Kerry Fukunaga kind of brought up to me. He showed me a track of just someone playing just rhythmic Coleno on their on their uh, uh, on their violin, just going like like muting the strings and just like and it was like this is a and he's like I love this percussion sound. I love whatever's happening here. I love this. And I was like, this is really cool, uh, but I do think that like this could get, after a certain amount of time, 
this sound could kind of get like a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, like repetitive or, uh, it's, it's kind of one dimensional. It can only, how long can this sustain us for? Um, and then, uh, and then I, I got the idea of like, what if we had multiple instruments that the Kalenio was on? Um, what if like, I want you to we... pause and explain to our audience what Kalenio means oh, sorry. And, and, right. and who Carrie is. Okay. Right. Sorry. Um, is that voice leaking in? Can you hear that person downstairs? A little bit, yeah. Okay, hold, hold on. If it's Ollie Hammonds, please say hello. It's, 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 not, a, uh, it's not Ollie. It's actually uh, it's a, it's, it's a Patrick Somerville, who is the uh, uh, showrunner. I, that was, well, Patrick wrote Maniac, was the writer on Maniac. Nice. He's, uh, he's a, a brilliant man. You can bring um, him on if you want. You know, <laughs> tell him you're doing a podcast. and. Uh, are you regulating via text right now? I am, I am. Nice. <laughs> no, sorry about this, guys. We are Score the Podcast. We embrace It's so damn live, you guys. It's so live. live. It's taped, yes. but it's live, you know? So you were going to tell us what Kalenio Okay, so Kalenio, so Kalenio uh, uh, means uh, with wood, with the, uh, with the wood of the bow. So um, it's... So... Um, damn... The most musical episode yet. Well, I have yeah. no, I have no violin or viola here, but if you're, he's gonna... got a, he's got an acoustic guitar in violin position here. This is great. Like when you're playing Kalenio, you're like, it's like that. So the thing is, if you don't mute the strings, then it's like this. You don't want that you, when you're doing Kalenio percussion. It's been a hard like day's night. Exactly. So you're just like this, and 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 you get different sounds for different parts of the neck. You can kind of mute it in different spots and it'll take on different sounds. And right now it's not very terribly different from where you're muting it, honestly. But yeah, like, so, you know. Wait, I, can you do a Yonzi thing for us? One Sigur, Sigur Ross vibe of drawing the bow across a guitar string. I can try even, it. I have I've actually it's never tried bowing a nylon string before. I was going to say, even though it's an acoustic. This is, no, I mean, Beast of No Nation is like so much bowed guitar. That's it. It's a hit. <laughs> and the Oscar goes too. That's all I got. I'm okay, sorry. good. That's all I can it do. It works. Um, so that's so. Yeah, that's Kalenio. Um, with uh, with Beast of No Nation, um, the uh, the um, sorry, I'm so sorry. He's. I, can I jump out and just uh, just sure. quiet bring, these voices? Bring him on. I'll, I'll, I'll bring him out eventually. Just give me one second. I'm so sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most improvisatory podcast <laughs> and YouTube channel currently on air. We are having fun with Dan Romer, a great composer, and as you can already tell, an incredibly creative musician who thinks of instruments not as just something to be approached traditionally yeah know, there's sound I design going on way. here on everything exactly right and uh just so interesting needless to say we haven't even gotten to no way Hello, I'm so, okay i'm back i'm so sorry about that good i feel like there this this feels important like you're it, there's so many things going on that like the the energy's high here i'm uh, i'm liking the vibe of this interview and as That's you were as you took a walk i was mentioning that how you create with instruments, not using them 
solely in the traditional way, and I really find that fascinating. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, did, I, did I put a cap on the Kalenio? <laughs> sort of. A well, little just, bit. Well, it's in the same vein, so I'll just say. So we, we what we did with the Kalenio kit was that we took... Um, a, a guitar, a ukulele, a banjo, a, um, I think a dulcimer. I can't remember. Where did the dulcimer go? I don't know. It's not in here right now. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in a makeshift studio right now because I moved uh, during COVID where it's just like I had to move studio spaces. Um, so I'm kind of in this like tiny cube at the moment. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I um, uh, so I took all those different instruments and rigged them up like a drum kit and I put an upright bass on the floor and rigged a chopstick up to the kick pedal. Of course. Um, yeah. And that's There's a, a well, video online. If, if people want to see what you're talking about, it's really cool to see how you did that. And then, and to hear how it came into the score and how you kind of put all of these things together to create a, a, a palette of really unique sound. And then you also added like wine glasses, the, the rim of a wine glass, stuff like that, which is, Really cool. Have you always been really into this this sound design instead of just using the, you know, standard way you use an instrument? Um, you're you're really experimental in that way. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I mean, absolutely. I come from I come from pop music and pop music production. I was in like rock bands my entire life and stuff. And so, I mean, yeah, I, I was always. I never like loved using loud guitars on things. You know, I never loved like big distorted guitars. I I made music with big distorted guitars mostly because people around me liked it, and it was like who like who are my collaborators, and like it's like okay, we're gonna do a thing with loud guitars. Um, <laughs> but that's like never been, you know, it's like like my for the stuff that I was really listening to at that point in my life was like the the newer stuff was like um, the Flaming Lips, the Soft Bulletin, and Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots, which are both like pretty like organic electronic hybrid like but they're not like heavy guitars you know mm -hmm. um and like mercury rev deserter songs and granddaddy well granddaddy some uh granddaddy granddaddy software slump had a bunch of loud guitars but it was like I, I liked just so much of the music i liked was just like kind of more psychedelic like interesting ways of using instruments kind of stuff and um when i was in college and playing with my band i was always bringing in these demos with like you know, accordion and lots of weird vocal pads. And uh, instead of like actually playing guitar, like I would like take notes of guitars and like chop them up into weird ways and make stuff that way. Um, and then we would get with a, you know, get together as a band and then play it as a band and it would become this like rock thing. <laughs> but that was never what I like really intended to make with music. And then, um, yeah, I feel like if I keep going, I'm just going to tell my entire history of that's what we're here for please do we want to know i mean i'm hanging by a thread here because i want to know what takes you from that which is i was gonna very... say it it sounds like you got bored with the regular pop music and and film music was just calling your name because of the uh experimentation that's allowed and the creativity that you can't really do in the, the regular pop world without freaking somebody out did that happen did you hear one day Dan, yeah, Dan, <laughs> from film music, sort of. I heard it from. I heard it. Well, okay. So this is uh, that's kind of what happened a little bit. So yeah, I never intended to make film music. That was never my intention. And when um, you know, I, I get the question uh, fairly often. Uh, you know, I, I want to be a film composer. What do I do? 
And one of the first things I always say is just learn to be a musician, learn to do every single part of the music process, and don't look film scoring in the eye. Like, huh. just do everything you can musically. And um, if someone asks you to mix their record, do it. If someone asks you to arrange horns for their record, do it. If someone asks you to do ambient music for an installation, do it. Like, whatever, whatever, like, if you just say, all I want to do is score films, or all I want to do is score video games or TV, um, those jobs aren't everywhere, especially for an aspiring composer. So you've got to kind of figure out your jobs and then everything. And what might happen is you might not become a film composer. You might become a, uh, a an incredible a horn arranger, or you might become the, the number one installation art ambient person. Who knows? Like, <laughs> you don't, but you know, you can't, I feel like if you say, this is what I'm going to do. Cause I just wanted to be David Bowie. That was like all I, that's what I wanted to do with my <laughs> life. You know? So if I just said, no, all I want to do is be a rock star, then I don't know what I'd be doing right now, but I just love music, I, you know, as a, as a, as a thing, you know? So it was, it, I think it's a lot better for your life, for your career and for your creativity to just say, I just want to be a musician and I just want to make things and it'll happen. However it happens. I can't control that really. It's just going to happen and I'm going to do my best, whatever I can. So you're not um, David Bowie. So how I'm did how did Bowie. film music find you? Because you weren't trying to find film music. Yeah. So well, I I, I think I should rewind to um, when I was sixteen. Uh, I was at LaGuardia uh, uh, the Performing Arts School in, in Manhattan. I grew up in Brooklyn, and I had uh, a teacher named Rob Apostle, and uh, I I have been teaching. I've been kind of teaching myself music theory since I was like twelve. My guitar teacher gave me a copy of the Circle of Fifths, which I didn't understand. But then um, I eventually, like, that moment in my my brain went off that, you know, with music theory, I think it's a thing where it's like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're like, oh, my God, I get it now. Okay, every uh, C, C, D, G, C chord, you know, C major, uh, sorry, G major, C major, D major is not, like, the most unique chord progression in the world. It's the same as A major, D major, E major. I just, like, what I just thought that every chord had its own thing. And then you find out one day it does. But, like you know, it's like you, you spend years of your life being like, Oh no. Okay. It's all about, you know, scales and diatonic stuff. And like how, uh, you know, all these chord progressions are just the same progression in different keys. And then you slowly kind of learn, no, a G minor chord actually has a different feeling from an E minor chord. And it's, it resonates Ooh. into the heart and, 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 and soul of our being as creatures. Uh, but like before, before that happens, you're like, okay, so, you know, that moment goes off where you're like, oh, that's what a key signature is. That's why this is this way. That Everything's just the same, you know. And then, so that had happened in my brain, and I was, like, flying through music theory stuff. And, you know, I, in the classes, I was, I was a vocal major. I was singing opera at LaGuardia. So, um, you know, the, the kids in my class, a lot of them, they were far, far better singers than me. Like, like no comparison. Um, but I got into the program because I more because I knew music theory. I could hold a pitch, you know. But the main thing was that I knew music theory. I, I think that was the main thing. And so, um, uh, so I, I was like, you know, uh, so I was obsessed with it. And I was talking to my teacher, and I said uh, to Rob Apostle, I was talking to him, and I was like, hey, I, I, I'm not, I'm not getting enough out of these music theory classes I'm in right now. I want a higher level of theory. Um, and he was like, all right, well, I can just start giving you, like, we can just start working together, you know, and, and, and I can just start giving you, uh, Bach chorales to analyze. Um, well, he actually said, do you want to go classical or jazz? And I said, classical. 
Um, I've grew, grown up around so much jazz, and I think there was like a little bit of a rebellion against my 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 father. Even though there's no reason to, he was a lovely man. There's a you know when you're a teenager, you're like about everything, and that's kind of like <laughs> jazz is my dad's music. I want to learn you know classical music, which is I mean, but so I I got really into Bach chorales. Uh, Rob showed me uh, you know how to do the analysis on them, and I became obsessed with them. And there's like. Lots of photos of when I was 16, me, like, it's, they look so pretentious now. I mean, they look so pretentious then, I just couldn't see it. But it's like a bunch of friends hanging out at a party, and then I'd be in the corner with, like, a suit jacket on and, like, a pen, a pencil analyzing Bob <laughs> no way. It's so silly. Mm-hmm. It's perfect, though. Wow. It's just perfect. I wonder where those friends are now. They're, you know, face down in the gutter, and you're scoring Luca. But please continue. Some of them are, yeah, some of them have They're not. at that same house party, and your chair's <laughs> empty. One of them, well, one of, one of them is the, was the producer of Peace of the Southern Wild, and uh, one of them, uh, yeah, and, and one of them was, I what's his title? He's like the head of special effects, I guess, on, on Beast of the Southern Wild. But so, yeah, we, we really remained a tight, a tight family, a lot of us. But so, um... You know, um, I, I so I had learned four-part voice writing, and I learned music theory, and uh, or I learned what music theory I, I, I knew. And so then going into college, I went to college for record production, and hmm. uh, and well, it's really like pop music arranging is the real kind of thing. I guess but you real quick, did you go to college for that? Was was were you wanting to be a pop record yeah, yeah. producer? Like, well, was that the goal? Yeah, well, just to just to be clear, when I say pop, I I, I mean like the the pop music meaning um, music that we listen to on recordings right. and people sing radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So record like, labels. Yeah, when I say record, yeah, when I say pop music, I'm I'm talking because you're about, stu- you're really into classical, and then you go take a pop course. I'm just curious, like what mm-hmm. where that pivot happened, where you yeah. decided like I, I'm I'm more interested in Christina Aguilera instead of Beethoven. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. Well. To, so. Okay. A couple of cl- clarifying things. So. First of all, um, I wasn't really into classical music. I was just studying it. You know. Like I was listening to. I was mostly at that point listening to. Yeah. Flaming Lips, Mercury Rev, Bell and Sebastian. Um, uh, the, the magnetic fields. Uh, yeah. Like all. Like. Like. You know. Uh, what we were calling indie rock at the time, which I think has a different meaning now. Um. It used to mean uh, banned on an independent label, and now it, it's just a sonic thing, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I was listening. Well, and Flaming Lips were an indie band. They were on Warner Brothers, um, and they still are, I think. Um, but so. Um, They've got the indie vibe, though. It's more of yeah, a. Yeah, but it's like, what is. Yeah, I know. It's just like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to, like, have. Like, an, it's like if, like, if you have money behind you, it's like you're not. Is if you have a major label behind you, you're not indie rock anymore. You're not an indie. It's band. like a it's like a craft beer getting bought by Budweiser. It was a craft beer, and then now it's on the major label. And it's like yeah. Searchlight that made Beasts of the Southern Wild, and everybody goes, "Wow, that's so cool!" It's a Searchlight movies, and well, Searchlight's owned by 20th Century Fox, which is owned by Fox Entertainment, which is yeah, you know, media behemoth. But it's a great corporate way of saying this is our low-budget alternative <laughs> experimental division. Well, in fact, as we all know, but I diverge, and we're on the cusp of learning what happens when you're in college <laughs> majoring in record production. So, yeah, I mean, my intention was to... My intention wasn't even to be a record producer, although I did a little bit of that. 
um, here and there. Like I had a four track, I had a Tascam four track. I would, nice. I would record some friends' songs on it. My, well, most of my own songs I was writing, and that was my intention to just be able to record my own songs really well and to get access to the studios. I I, I had checked out Berkeley School of Music, but at that time, um, a it was very expensive, and b uh, I, I, um, it, they, at the time you had to be an instrument major before you were a production major. I, I think now that's not the case anymore. I pause for a moment. Let us ask a Berkeley graduate who is on this screen with us. Carol, do you have to be an instrument major? I auditioned as a piano player and then later on declared film scoring and music business. But I think that's the case still till this day where you have to audition as an instrument player. Though, don't you have a kind of business track at Berkeley that you can take? Or a yeah, that's production what I track? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you passed on going to Berkeley, which would have been a whole different route for you. You went to SUNY Purchase. I did. Um, and somewhere in there, somebody said, do you want to score major Hollywood motion pictures? No, that's or not, not. What happened. No. no. So I, I just... Played in bands and produced bands and, you know, uh, played songs with people until six in the morning, you know, partying all night and stuff and had an amazing experience over there. Um, and then at the end of my experience there, uh, my friend Ray Tintori, who I've known since I was seven years old, uh, called me and he was like, hey, will you score my senior thesis film? Uh, and I was like, I've never scored a film before. And he said, that's okay. Um well, I'd already met him because I was... Okay, so Ben Zeitlin, the director of Beasts of the Southern Wild, he was in a grunge band called Sorry Porkies when he was in high school. And uh, and that band had then, in college, stopped having him as their singer and then became a band called Skeleton Breath. And they were like a prog... Like a, like a prog... Uh, well, they were like a violin prog rock band. And I produced their record in college and then... And then I met Ben through those guys because those guys, one of those guys ended up scoring one of Ben's shorts and that's why I met Ben. But so when I was talking to Ray, he said, I said, you know, I don't know how to score films. And he said, well, you remember Ben? You met him at that session. Um, he's, you know, he can, he doesn't know how to actually make music himself, but he can show you how film music works. And I was like, cool. So he put me and Ben together. Um, and then he was, and then so Ben and I, spent like 10 days scoring this short together and you know it really was at that point ben like directing me as a composer being like okay try this try this try this kind of thing you know and then like getting ideas together but we weren't really writing together yet and then uh and then that short went to sundance uh it was called death of the tin man uh and it went to sundance and um you know we were all like it was like such an amazing experience all being like 22 years old and having a thing at Sundance and we were like a bunch of us were out there and it was so fun. Um, and then didn't it, win? it won the prize, didn't it for a short film? It won an honorable mention. It didn't win like, oh, okay. like the, the prize, but then Ben made his own short. That was like a, like a 20 to 25 minute long short called uh glory at sea. And so Ben asked me, will you score that with me? And Ben knew my string work with, cause one of the things that I was doing was <clears throat> I was working with a lot of singer songwriters and doing a lot of uh, string arrangements for them because I knew how to do four-part writing from the Bach. So uh, I was doing all these like string quartet things um, for different artists, and Ben had heard that I was doing that, and he and he was like, "Oh, you know how to write string quartets." Well, he's like, "Will you score? Will you do this film score with me?" 
for Glory at Sea, we can this time we'll like actually write it together. I have a lot of ideas for for pieces of music, and then you know you can like flesh them out into like bigger orchestrations with the with the with the, the string quartet stuff. And I, and so we got together and we were making that uh, we we scored that film together, and that was I mean, and you know we really became like brothers during that process, mm. and um and then he asked me three years later to score a piece of the Southern Wild. Um, which was my first feature. Can um, I ask, did he ask you to score it or to co-score it? To co-score it. No, I just wonder that seriously because, you know, that was a Fox film some way and I was inherited that and I always wondered, as I often do, did was the director truly a co-composer? Was he musical? Did Were you the brains of the operation and... Uh, you know, I just wasn't certain how that relationship, until this conversation, how that evolved so that he had co-credit, when in fact, you've gone on to, to this fabulous composing career, Ben is just a director, he's not going on to also compose, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. No, well, okay, so... I will, so uh, what I'll say is that Ben um, has made an incredible musical journey over the last 20 years, since I first met him, and he, I, I, I don't think that he would get upset if he was sitting there and here. And I told you he was tone deaf twenty years ago. Um, he couldn't uh, hear a pitch and sing it. You know, um, the only way that he could write really was um, sitting at a keyboard, like picking out notes one by one. And and he would only do it in the key of C. Like he's just like just the white keys, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, his skill level was very low. But the thing is that he's a genius artist. Hmm. And so, you know, whatever way he can get into something, he's amazing at it once he's able to kind of uh, do anything within within it. And so I, I think what happened with us on Beast of Southern Wild was that he came in with some ideas that were that were like very clear ideas uh, melodically and, and rhythmically. Hmm. And then we kind of, we knew it was going to be in the same world as Glory at Sea. We had already kind of like figured out our sound on glory um and we were like it's going to be like glory at sea except we're going to add uh accordion we're going to add fiddle we're going to add some like ragtag percussion you know we're going to and we're going to add a cajun band at some points hmm. so we knew that was that was the that was the quest at that point and so um yeah i mean ben uh we recently got him a pro tools rig uh <laughs> and we just scored a film together uh called akara and and it it just went to uh, the Can Directors Fortnite. We uh, it won. The, I don't know if it's the prize or a prize there, but it's it's Jonas Carpignano's third film. Amazing. Um, ben and I scored Mediterranea while I was scoring Piece of Donation. I scored Mediterranea with Ben, and then I scored alone a Chambra, which is Jonas's second film, and now uh, Akara uh, just came out. Uh, I don't know if it's available yet for people to actually watch, but Ben came to me on that film. Uh, with very fleshed out Pro Tools demos, like he, I, and I took, I work in Pro Tools, so does he, um, and I was just able to really take his sessions and like work off of the, like this was the first time that it was like, oh, these sessions are good enough, and like you engineered them well enough in a way where I can actually take these and and this this can be the basis for our cues, and and that's what we did. Nice. I think what's great, and we're gonna take a break, is that Ben is showing something when you tell this story and all props to 
been there's a new column starting in the new york times called never too late i read about it this morning which says in all of our lives you can start to learn things that you think you couldn't learn to hear the story of a director who was tone deaf who 20 years later is bringing pro tools cues to a composer yeah is inspiring and on that note of inspiring as our conversation has been inspiring we're going to take a break for just a minute and then come back with Dan Romer telling us tales of beasts. Hey guys, it's good to see you. I wanted to tell you about this thing called More Score. Have you heard about this? I have heard about it because but that's because I read everything. So I mean, <laughs> there's very little I've It gets heard printed about. daily and I'm on and, it. Uh, delivered to your front doorstep. Yes. yes, more score is what it is. It's it's our new Patreon show and all of our listeners can go check it out. We're putting out episodes all the time and you're probably wondering what's Patreon? Have you heard I of am. Patreon Could you before? tell me? Uh, I'd be I'd be delighted to tell you. Patreon is a website where our fans basically can crowdfund and tell us the type of content that they would like us to be able to go produce. So we've been going out and doing interviews with people. Um, obviously, we've we've interviewed you both directly there and a little bit about your lives and, and the people who you've crossed paths with, but also um, Carlos Rafael Rivera the, of uh, the Queen's Gambit. On Netflix and uh, the guys from Cobra Kai, which it was kind of cool. We found out that um, when we recorded with Chris Beck for uh, score a film music documentary, those guys were just getting coffee. They might have offered us. I coffee, think uh, Zach uh, said we they did. did the I think, and it was great mm -hmm. coffee, which was a great sign for their it futures. Was... Yes, I remember and... that, and I he he actually told me. His career has been completely downhill since that moment. <laughs> but that Well, that often... wasn't in the interview, so it doesn't count. If ah, he said anything darn. of the sort, then uh, it wasn't on the record. Okay, Zach, but, sorry, um, man. But we're putting these episodes out all the time, More Score. How do you get to it? You can go to patreon.com slash more score um, or download the Patreon app and search More Score. Oh, of course, here's my alarm going off right as we're recording this. That's because uh, it's so exciting. It's You've like set the alarm off. You, th this is like these little reads that we're doing right now for more score are, we're going to do a couple of them and our listeners can collect them all. If they aren't hitting that little 15, you should make an button, NFT out I, of them. Yeah. It, there's, I was going to say, you can make a non fungible <laughs> token out of a more score read. Yeah, we could do that. We do have an or official not. season, uh, season four score, the podcast NFT that's now Ooh. available. We have one for each season. Not for each episode, but for each season. So if anyone out there, Heavy. but uh, the we're getting off track. More score is on Patreon. It's uh, you can go to it Patreon.com/slash/MoreScore. We're putting out episodes all the time, and it's extra stuff. It's stuff you won't hear on Score the Podcast. Access to different people, interesting voices, um, and for your support, we have these perks too. So you can get a, a pretty cool little collector's T-shirt that we're putting out now. Um, this coffee mm -hmm. mug that's pretty cool uh, has all the kind of our, our instrument orchestra instrument look on it. It's pretty cool stuff. So uh, you can support us there. Patreon.com/slash/MoreScore. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Patrick Doyle. You're listening to Score the Podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. We're here with Dan Romer, who's in a toy box full of musical instruments at his disposal at any point. What's what's immediately to your right right now? What do you have there? A, a, a punch drive. But oh, also, nice. Also, Which can be an instrument. As this, Oh, ooh. there you go, a tambourine. Good. Yeah, you got to have multiple tambourines because you never know, you know which, which, which one is going to... Be the right one, and you want you can combine them to a certain extent. But this is Uh-oh. the tambourine I've been using mostly. This is what I used on Luca, because I mean I can't really play it, so I just kind of like put it in my in my I put it in my lap and play it that way. Uh, that seems to be the way I can get the best rhythms. I've never heard anyone. This is historic. I've never heard anyone say they can't play a tambourine, and so I think we've just made history. On I felt like that was the instrument they give you in like fourth grade when you're the teachers like that kid's worthless. <laughs> Give him the tambourine. <laughs> well, <laughs> all you have to do is shake it. <laughs> no, but Dan's right. Tambourine. There's, there's, but yeah. then the, there's elevated. Oh, no, right. Obviously, there's, there's in Roma culture in a lot of cultures. The tambourine player has a very important job, and it's a much. That more was more of a shot at me than yeah. the, there's professional no, no, tambourine cool. players. No, Even no, no my fifth like, grade band. I had a fifth grade band. We pretended, but Nikki, the the kind of. <laughs> coolest fifth grader who we put in the band because he was cool we gave him a tambourine because he couldn't do anything musical um I mean, so so dan if you we, we were, it, well, i wanted to say about ahead. tambourine is that yes. if you you know you, you it looks easy but then even just going teka 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 just doing that like someone like i i i remember i was i was in a band and i was there was a ba- bass player from another band and i was like yo dude can you just jump in? We really need because it was this beat that was like a chat 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 kind of like Motown style beat. And I was like, "Can you come in and give us a chicka 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 on the accordion because the beat doesn't sound right without those sixteenth notes?" And he's like, "Yeah, no problem." I was like, "You played tambourine before?" He's like, yeah, I got it. And he just came in and was like, "Chaka chaka chaka." Oh God! It was like that. It's not the easiest instrument in the world. I absolutely feel you on that, and you're a hundred percent correct. And I have been the tambourineist in some lame sessions and found out exactly what you're saying, which is internal rhythms and getting them straight. Not so easy. And I'm holding my hand up. I've ended up sore at the end of a tambourine date because Mm -hmm. there's, there's more. Those are muscles. You're not normally uh, working. Ladies and gentlemen, revelation of score, the podcast, there's more to tambourining and being a tambourine. I take it all back. The fifth graders, they go on to be the most talented. Dan, what we're also seeing, and which is really interesting to me, is you have gone from what can only be described as the film music analog to some of those bands, Mercury Rev and Flaming Lips, Beasts of the Southern Wild or Beasts of No Nation. These are as close to kind of indie film vibe. They're not the major motion picture, and yet... I see you gravitating towards and being, of course, now in demand for what can only be described as some much more mainstream pictures. Pixar being 
exactly an example of that, even though you maintained a very wonderful indie approach. But do you feel that that's where your career is starting to gravitate towards, which is mainstream Hollywood? I mean, the most important thing for me, I think, is doing projects that I think are cool and working with people that I think are really creative and, and really smart and really fun to work with, you know? Nice. And I mean, like, I would really, you know, I, I, I would always, I always want to do the thing that seems like the best piece of art and with the, and, 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 and I always want to work with old friends and people I've been working with forever. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, that's what I, I, I always kind of come back to that as like an incredibly important thing. It's just like the, the people that you surround yourself with and the people that you collaborate with, you know? Um, well, your, yeah, your path is exactly what you were saying, right? It's like you, you, you weren't set out to be a film composer, but all of these tools and skills that you developed doing other things come into play and you, you go into film music and you hit it out of the park. So a after um, Beasts of the Southern Wild, what happens? Are you now like, I'm Dan Romer, the film composer? Or how did you continue on? Did you want to keep doing films? Was that just a, a fun thing that you wanted to try out? Like, how did you move on from that? And and what do you consider yourself at that point? Are you a record producer who scored a film? Or are you now a film composer who's looking for more more gigs? Yeah, I uh, I moved out to L.A. So I lived in Brooklyn my entire life. And I moved out to L.A. when I was 29 years old, which was when Beast came out. And I came out to L.A. to become a film composer. That was the plan. <laughs> I, I, you know, I had only, only scored one film, but I, I, I said, this is, you know, as when you're an artist, you get pigeonholed very easily. And um, at that moment, I was kind of like, if I'm going to get pigeonholed for something, I would much rather it be something like Beast of the Southern Wild than anything else. So I was like, I'm going to go out to LA. I'll go get, I'll go, you know, try to do more stuff like that. And I got out here and, you know, um, it took some time to start scoring more films. I mean, if you look at, if you looked at my IMDb, you'd see like, you know, there's a gap between, you know, 2012 and 2015 or something, you know, we met right in that moment. And I can't remember First of all, where were you? Where was that studio? I Cla came to Glassville Park. Yeah, yeah. Can like I ask what when you suburbs. come to L.A. and you're trying to be a film composer? What do you do? What you get to L.A. Are you knocking on doors? Are you trying to get meetings? Like, what's your mindset and how do you approach it if you don't know this world? You didn't grow up with a family in Hollywood or something to kind of show you the way to to get yourself out there. And this is still probably not quite social media like network ability time what what do you do to get your your name in people's rolodex yeah i mean yeah my, my parents are both uh are both teachers and political activists uh back in brooklyn I, I definitely didn't grow up in hollywood um yeah i uh i mean i had a manager i, ha I have a manager i've had the same manager for the last 11 years now hmm. um and uh and i and i had signed on with an agent so you know the the i had the team in place um it was just like an issue of you know you, when you when you have one when you have one film and 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 i do think that this i've been told similar things about this about like not jumping just taking things step by step by step by step where it's like i had scored only one feature at that point you know and it was and it was a feature that got like a ton of 
recognition, you know. But if I had scored a bunch of movies before that one uh, that hadn't done as well, then I would have had a massive catalog to draw on. Like, hey, look, I can do this. I can do this kind of thing. I can do this kind of thing. And people can look back to the stuff and say, oh, the guy who did Beast of the Sun and Wild um, also has done like an electronic film, has done this score, has done this weird score. There's just so much stuff there to look at. But I had come at, I'd come, I'd come to the table with like, I have two short films and I scored Beast of the Southern Wild. The two short films are very much in the same realm. And I produced a bunch of pop music. And it's like, that, what that leads people to say is, well, we like, uh, we love Beast of the Southern Wild and, and, you know, we, but we don't want a Beast of the Southern Wild type score on our film. Right. You know, and so are, do, you, do you then say like, well, let me demo, let me, let me, let me show you, let me show you, or is that just tough news and you keep going for the next? Because it's very, like you said, it's easy to get pigeonholed, and you don't really have anything else to show. So, so what do you do in that situation? Yeah, I mean, honestly, people, I think people are much more likely to say, well, I know this person can do it, rather than having someone who they're not sure can do it demo. You know, I think they feel more secure saying like, well, this person's delivered 40 feature films and uh, like this kid seems like creative and scrappy and cool. But like, we don't really have evidence that that they're going to deliver, you know, and, and film scoring is such like a responsibility job versus record production. I mean, not that you don't have to be responsible as a record producer, but I feel like it's like film scoring is so much like deliver like when he, delivering things that people want by a certain time, and it's like there's a lot of schedule stuff involved and a lot of like you know really showing up. And I and I feel like the record production world is a is a is a is a bit more was a bit more wild, you know. Um, and uh, you know, I, I feel like they really need to see that you're like you're responsible going into a film score, you know, and. Um, and I feel like, uh, you know, at that early time when you're, when you're a kid who has only scored one thing, it's like, it's, it's hard for people to say, yes, get, get this person and everything. But so, I mean, what happened with me was then, um, you know, a, a few different directors, uh, you know, t- took a chance on me at that point. I mean, um, you know, uh, Clay Tweel and, uh, and Joe Swanberg and then, uh, and, uh, Anna Mastro and then, um, and then, uh, Carrie Fuganaga asked me to score, uh, well, I had scored a short for Carrie, actually, right after Beast of the Southern Wild. I, I scored this mm. short called Sleepwalking in the Rift. Um, and so we'd work together on that. And then, and then he was like, hey, we got a composer already for True Detective, but, uh, I would love you to come score, uh, this film, Beast of No Nation. And so, um, and then, so that was like really my first, uh, film that people re- like that got like wide recognition after Beast of the Southern Wild, and once and then that score is so different from Beast of the Southern Wild, even though even though they both have the word beast in the title, uh, <laughs> their scores are very different. And then um, you know I think that that was the moment where it was like, oh okay, I can do electronic stuff as well. And then when I got the gig of scoring Far Cry Five, they the two references for them were Beast of No Nation and Beast of the Southern Wild, and they had taken. They were like, what if you take like the banjo slash guitar stuff of Beasts of the Southern Wild and put it over the ambient kind of like dark, you know, droney Beasts of uh, no, uh, Beasts of Donation sounds. And that's how I kind of ended up doing that gig. Yeah, the, the Far Cry 5 score is terrific, by the way. I was going through it and listening and it's it really is so different. Some of the cues are like 
these dreamy, beautiful, like I'm picturing the landscape of, you know, wide open Montana trees. And then you got these electronic pumped up energetic intense cues when you get into a video game like what did you what were you most surprised by um in scoring a video game because you you have the cinematic scenes but you also have that like never-ending loop of music that you can't drive someone crazy with but it has to be good like what what was the most surprising thing for you when you jump into uh doing a video game versus the film and tv you've been doing um you know, I don't. I, I don't know if I if I'd say that anything was particularly su- surprising. Um, it was definitely like it's it's very different from from scoring a film or scoring a TV show. It's more similar to scoring a TV show probably than a film because just the sheer amount of music you need to make. You know, mm. um, and but yeah, it's interesting because it's like you you don't want to reuse beds on a video game you don't want to like reuse so it really is you're just creating so much new content you know because it's like it's like on a tv show you might have some similar sounding cues here and there but those cues aren't going to get looped you know whereas in a video game like if it's if stuff's going to be looped it's like uh you know you 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 got to make every cue sound pretty different from each other um but yeah i mean I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would say is surprising or is what was surprising about it. But I loved it. I is loved it doing something it. that you are you still going after video games? Is that something you want to keep doing, or is it does it matter to you? It's just as long as the game is cool. Yeah, you, I mean, you're I into think, it. I guess. I think that's the main thing. It's like for me, it's not like I'm, I have a specific, you know, uh, genre or a specific medium that I am going after. You know, it's like, I just want to do things that I think are, are, are beautiful. Love that. And the, what I am really inspired by is the creativity. That's what I dig so much. And, um, it's really, I think what's so interesting, something you just graced over, which is well, from 2012 to 2015, it got quiet. I think that's a, a really tremendous challenge for any artist, particularly somebody in who has to rely on the gigs from outside. You know, if you're a poet, 2012 to 2015, you just sit and write poetry and maybe you'll get published or maybe not. A film composer has to wait for the call. And a lot of film composers get discouraged or depressed. And I don't know if that happened during that time. I know that certainly has happened to Yours truly, certain times where nothing was happening, I thought, oh, this is it, man, end of the road. Did you ever think end of the road? Or oh, did yeah. you say, I- I'm on it? No, I absolutely thought, like, oh, a few times I was like, oh, I maybe I just wasn't <clears throat> cut out to be a film composer. Maybe this is just not the life that I was meant for me. And, I mean, in that time, I also, that was when I was like, I think that's, well, that's definitely when I produced Say Something, the Great Big World track. Um. And then I did Sean Mendez Treat You Better a little bit after that. So I kind of nice. like really went back into pop music for a lot of that time. Um, I remember I was like demoing on a lot of commercials at the time too. Um, so it was like, huh. yeah, it was like commercial work and, and, and producing pop music and really not scoring that much stuff. And then it was really like, it, it, it was around 2015 where it started being like, okay, I did piece of donation and then I, I had a bunch of, and then I, I had, Films at Sundance every year, uh, starting around 2015, nice. 
Um, and, um, and, and then that's also around when I got my first, uh, TV shows, which were, um, Joe Swanberg's TV show, Easy. Um, oh, cool. and then, and then, uh, my first, and then, but that, that show was really more like a group of short films. Um, so it wasn't like the, which I love doing it's it, 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 schedule wise and just like process wise. It's not, it wasn't the same as other TV shows. And then atypical was my first TV show that was like, oh, okay, this is like how this medium works. Got it. Well, I remember, and I think just before we, we wrap this up, cause we've taken a lot of time out of your busy day. Um, you and I had a conversation about, I'm guessing two years ago, uh, which I don't know if it's a comfortable topic. That's a big pre-production, but I congratulated you on some news and you said to me quite presciently, and I'll never forget it because you're just so smart about these things. And I thought, Huh, I didn't expect that response. I said, man, congratulations. I just heard that you've gotten this amazing gig. And you said, not so fast to me. Let's see. And I thought, well, that's a very sophisticated composer to know that it ain't over till it's over. And only the top guns have that experience. I mean, you've been, what's interesting about today's conversation is you've said things that I just, treasure you know never look film composing in the eye you said and take it step by step you don't make a leap i mean this is like film music 101 advice but i think this experience uh that we're talking about is also an experience that film composers don't realize is what gives you your badge of metal your 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 medal of honor that says i've survived and thrived easy to talk about not your favorite subject moving on what do you think yeah i think you're talking about you're talking about no time to die i think is is what you're talking about we're talking about and, uh, <laughs> um you know we 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 have a lot of of our listeners who are aspiring composers working composers and there's a ton of glitz and glam on, on these conversations but there's also the reality of like you know sometimes the, the vibe isn't there or the, you know, the studio wants to go a different way. What, what do you like for people who are listening when those situations happen and, and, you know, you get a job and then you're replaced, like, how does that shape you moving forward? Cause you didn't stop. It, it, you didn't quit. I mean, you're, you're, you go on to Luca and absolutely crush it. And it's one of your, my favorite scores from you. Um, and th this was right after that. Like how, how do you, move on from that and and what do you take from a situation like that to to make you stronger yeah i mean you know that film was essentially just when, when i was working on it, it was just me and carrie fukunaga you know my my dear old friend you know working together like we always have like we did on maniac like we did on beast of no nation you know and um you know carrie and i are going to continue to work together in our lives uh i love him with all my heart you know, and, you know, I think everyone, that whole situation was really amicable at the end. You know, I think everything nice. was, is totally, yeah, I think everything, I mean, you know, everyone's got stuff they got to do in their lives. You know, I, everyone's, everyone is trying to do the right thing. And, and, you know, here I am, uh, you know, it was, um, yeah, I mean, you can't let that kind of stuff, uh, 
you know, stop you from being creative uh, in, in, in many other ways, you know? And so, I mean, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I, I can't remember. Was it tough? I mean, it seems was. like it's, it seems like it's tough to talk about, but like it is, do you, does that fuel you? Does that drive you? Cause sometimes you hear, you know, people at the highest level of everything. It's like mm-hmm. that, that's the moment where you said, all right, I'm going to go on to the next one and show you how good I can be. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're you're an artist and you're making art, and and when art is put in front of you, you you, you never say like, oh, I had this experience on this thing, and that's going to affect <laughs> me. And this, you say like, this is this thing, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna do it. You know, the same way I would have done it in any other part of my life. Um, I will say, you know, it's interesting. It's like I I, I do now, uh, Robert, to attest to what you were saying before. Like, I I don't announce the, a a job generally until like right before it's it's coming out and the the bond thing leaked, um Ooh. yeah so and it was like all right well this is leaked I'm not gonna like deny it for the next I'm not gonna like now have Instagram posts in London for the next six months and then be like <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, um, <laughs> but that is like but you know the thing is like I think with social media we are very pressured we we're not we're not pressured by anybody we feel pressured to uh always be talking about what we're doing you know and be like here's i'm working on this thing and here's everything except for the video you know and um here's like what I, you know and, and i and i feel like that's not something that uh is healthy for us as artists to always be showing what we're working on telling everyone about what we're telling every, everyone everything that we're doing because you just never know how things are going to go and you know i think that uh i i try to keep a level of of uh of of not secrecy but a level of you know non-engagement as far as talking about what i'm doing all the time on the social media i i think you've just described what the lesson is that you learned which um i for one subscribe to which is how important discretion is Mm -hmm. when you're working on something because what could be more inappropriate than announcing at the beginning of a project, hey, look, I got this gig, and then having to either step away, step down, which happens so often that people aren't aware of it. There is nothing better in every way than something coming out and people saying, wow, man, I didn't realize, or that's wonderful, but it takes the experience that you and I have both had of finding out that, I mean, I told this story yesterday about it, Somebody I worked with who had just sent a demo for a Disney animated TV series and was kind of telling her friends, I'm getting it. They love me. It's going to change my life. I mean, it was like, wow. And I couldn't say what was in my heart, which is chill, just chill. P.S. After about a month of how exciting this was, you can kind of predict what happened. They went another direction. Yeah. And, and that that makes it even worse. Yeah. So when, you, you know. and also Dan, I really love what you kind of took a spotlight to, which is how social media we assume that people are really paying attention to our career and it's really important to let them know how busy we are. Mm, not as important as just doing the work and seeing what happens. But yeah, I'm yeah. excited to just have this opportunity to talk to you. I know that you were very busy today before we close it up. Can you tell us a little bit what you're very busy with so we know what to look forward to coming up? 
anything without revealing exactly what I just said, which is <laughs> after we well, just man, said, um, don't tell us what you're doing. Yeah. What are you working on, by the way? Well, you know, I, I honestly like I would, you know, I, I, I just I just spoiled it by telling you who was whose voice you were hearing. So, yes. Yeah, I am working on Patrick Somerville uh, on his new show, Station Eleven. Uh, oh, nice! Wow, yeah. that's thrilling for a lot of reasons, but one of them is I love that book. Yeah, it's it's. I be love that book. Yeah, and I kind of heard they were going to make it. It's a series, not a film, correct? Yes. Oh man, that's exciting! Well, bravo. And l- let me just ask you this: How nice is it that they're down the hall and not? through a screen like we are right now that's got to be a a nice change of pace yeah they're in the same space yeah wait wait who's sorry who's in the same space unless we were listening didn't you say they're they're in the building with you right oh yeah yeah patrick's downstairs yeah we're at my house we went through this whole period where you weren't allowed to like talk with anyone in person for a while how how great is that to be back in the room with uh your collaborators yeah that no that's it's great i love that i love that aspect for sure the first time I, i was in another room with someone making music it was like a spiritual experience. It was like I can't tell me doing just this. any any forecasting for when ish Station Eleven would be on our small screens. No, I can't give you. Uh, can't Thank give you me. very much, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> News break. Um, Dan but, Romer says he doesn't know when it's coming out. We'll put that out. The, I can only tell our audience and tell Patrick that you have one fan who will be there the minute it. I loved the book. The book is so on time for what we're all going through, which is really amazing because I read the book three years ago, maybe before the current situation. And so I think about it, but, and I think in bringing it full circle, it will be very curious to see for this story and the period that it takes place in what styles Dan Romer will choose to articulate the narrative and the characters in the book to express the station. Will it be one of the instruments he showed right here? Yes. Score the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it first. There will be tambourine in one cue on the station 11 score. We're now revealing. Oh, so much tambourine. Okay, good. Oh, so funny. much tambourine. That's the do, 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 do. tambourine. Um, Dan, Dan Romer, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Really quick, a uh, reminder to our listeners, you can follow us. There's a number of ways. Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Instagram, at Score Movie. Facebook, Score a Film Music Documentary. And don't forget to subscribe on Patreon, patreon.com slash more score. It's our new show. Exclusive interviews, exclusive merch, stuff you can't get here on the show. And stick around after today's show. We're going to play you a clip from Spitfire Audio so you can hear some of the different sample sounds to elevate your music. Robert, take it away, man. I would only suggest to everyone who's just enjoying an hour with Dan Romer, if you haven't, go watch his films and listen to his scores because... Luca, it's so good. We are really lucky to have him as a guest. Dan, it's lovely to see you and... uh, I'm just thankful that you found some time for us to share this conversation. So, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you next week with another amazing episode of Score the Podcast. Two weeks. Thank you, Dan. Two weeks. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, everybody. Hey, Score listeners, we're so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio. We really are. They help us put this show on and bring it to you. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herman Estate. 
to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. I almost stepped on you there. Sorry, but are you okay? <laughs> As an exclusive to score listeners, that's you, and watchers, if you're on YouTube, you can save 25% right now. Just go to spitfireaudio.com, and in the checkout, use the promo code SCORE2021, 25% off your first order of Spitfire products, including this package right here. Check out this demo cue from the Hammers package. Again, just go to spitfireaudio.com, use the promo code SCORE2021, and you can save 